0: We are going to continue through Second Peter this morning, and we've come as far as verse 18 in chapter 2. We are going to actually finish up chapter 2 this morning. It's been a few weeks uh, coming. But we are going to get through chapter 2, and then we'll probably break into chapter 3 a little bit. Verse 18 says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Now, if you remember back last week, we are talking about these false teachers that will creep into the church, bring in destructive heresies, bringing these destructive heresies alongside the truth. Um, And bringing heresy alongside truth makes all of it false. Um, It is interesting in watching and listening to some of these false teachers we see little glimmers of truth in what they're saying. But the main premise, their focal point, is on you. It's not on Christ. And that's not correct. Uh, it's not us who tells Christ what to bless us with. It's Christ who determines in his own good and perfect will how to bless us, and he, he holds everything in his hand. Uh, we don't have the power to tell him, God, I need a new Porsche this week. So I'm saying that to you. Now you have to give that to me. That's not how it works. And that's what some of these guys will say. They will speak these great and swelling words of emptiness. It's this idea, and I think of it like cotton candy. Okay, you go to the state fair, and you see the cotton candy getting twirled on the little stick that they give you. And it looks really full and uh, filling, and it's just enticing. You bite into it, it's super sweet, you enjoy it, but it dissolves in your mouth. You don't really hardly swallow anything because it's gone so quickly. And it's interesting, molecularly, that this simple, simple sugar that makes up the cotton candy can actually be partially absorbed right through your cheek into your bloodstream. It doesn't even have to go through your digestive system go into your small intestine and absorb that way, it can go straight in. So it's a sugar rush. It literally, this is what a sugar rush is. That sugar goes directly into the bloodstream, spikes your glucose levels, makes you feel really energetic, and then it leaves you with a crash. Right. So it's the same way with these false teachers. They'll puff up. They'll say these great swelling words of emptiness, and they'll get you really excited. It'll get you on this spiritual high, and then it'll leave you with a crash because there's no substance to it. You're still hungry for the word for God after you get done taking in what they give you. And so that is who we're talking about here. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Now it says that they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness. These are the means by which they literally set a trap for the, the less steadfast in the faith. They will set traps, and allure right here in the Greek literally means to set bait for. They are setting bait for the weaker Christians by using lewdness and lust of the flesh. And as sad as that is, that's the truth. They are trying to entice the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Now, the oldest manuscripts and the Vulgate would read scarcely escaped or for but a little time have scarcely escaped. Okay, so it says actually escaped in my New King James, uh, but those older manuscripts and the Vulgate read slightly differently. But I will tell you that we are not talking about Someone losing their salvation here. Okay, that's not what this is speaking of. This is speaking of the false teachers trying to allure somebody who has seen the truth, but has not fully accepted Christ as their Savior. And he clarifies that in the next couple of verses. So we'll look at that. The ones who have actually escaped or scarcely escaped from those who live in error. 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. These false teachers will promise you liberty. They will say, hey, like, what is this antiquated stuff you're teaching? Like, We are no longer bound by this. Surely God knows in his omniscience that um, culture has changed. Right, So we're no longer bound by what the Bible tells us, but there are new rules for culture now. Um, They promise liberty. You don't have to live by the rules given to you previously. Uh, Come with us and we'll show you a better way. So in promising liberty, they actually lead people into bondage. Um, And it says here, I'm not making this up, that they are actually slaves of sin themselves. So how can someone that is a slave to sin themselves lead someone else out of sin? It's not possible. Um, And even me standing here this morning, if I'm in sin, how can I lead you out of sin? It's not me that leads you out of sin. It's Christ who works through something that I might say. And so Christ being without sin can lead you out of sin. But these guys they are literally, it says here, they are slaves of corruption. Literally slaves. They cannot break out of that. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So the same thing that that overcomes you is what brings you into bondage. It says in verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are in ta- again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So here, Peter is describing false Christians. Okay, it's these people that come into the church, look spiffy on the outside, but on the inside, they are not reborn. They are still living their previous lives. Um, and he'll, he'll go back and clarify his position on this in a couple of verses again. And really this whole verses 18 through 22 is talking about this same issue. So when we finish going through verse 22, we'll go back and we'll read the whole thing so you get a better idea of the entire sense of the passage. Uh, For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. They escape the world through knowledge. Okay, These are the false Christians. They have heard the truth about Jesus Christ, about his coming, his death, his resurrection, and um, how that can impact their lives. They've heard that. The knowledge is there. But remember, knowledge is not... What saves us? It's the application of the blood to our lives. That is what actually saves us. So they have the knowledge part. That part has been granted to them by God. They have escaped the pollutions of the world through knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But if they are again entangled in them, referring to the pollutions of the world, and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So these false Christians that we're talking about revert back to the ways of the world and back to that which they had a chance to be permanently saved from. They're going back to those things that they knew before. They knew the truth, but they turned away from it. And the scripture says, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. That's harsh. That's not me saying that. That is the Holy Spirit through Peter writing these words. And it is sobering to look at this and understand how harsh it actually is. The Holy Spirit is harsh to these false teachers. okay? And their judgment is coming. And Peter, again, will talk about that. He talked about it uh, last week, I believe it was, and he will talk about it again in chapter 3. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. They've heard the truth and they've ignored it, they put it aside and they're following their own lustful desires. Now, people ask about this. Um, hypothetical man on an island who has never heard of Jesus Christ, how does God judge that man? Well, I see some indication in this passage that maybe God knew that that man wouldn't accept him, that that man would turn away from the truth, and he is saving some judgment from that man. This indicates that that is a possibility. So I'll, I'll leave you with that thought. But it is interesting to me to, to consider that side of it. Um, rather than judging that man more harshly, God is showing <laughs> mercy to that man. It's a possibility. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Earlier in verse 12, Peter compares these false teachers to brute beasts, okay? And now he's specifying that they are like dogs and like pigs, okay? Again, harsh language. These people, these false Christians, have cleaned up on the outside, but they remain unchanged on the inside. A dog can get super muddy. We have a little chi-chi, a little chihuahua Chinese crested mix that runs out when it's real muddy outside, just gets it everywhere in the house. Okay, And he can get just disgusting all muddy up and bring it in the house and whatever. We can clean him up, get him all prim and proper, and the next day when it rains, he'll, he'll be out there doing it again. You can clean them up on the outside, but you can't change the nature of them. They will always run back to that mud puddle, track it all inside the house. It's the same way with the pig. You know, we've got these show pigs, and, you know, I went to Tarleton, so... <laughs> The agriculture scene is is very heavy there, uh, and you've got these show pigs all day. They wallow around in the mud, and this literally their own feces, and you take them out to a show, you clean them up, you get them looking real nice, okay? But when you bring them back to their pen, what's the first thing they do? They run back to the mire. They run back to that slop, start eating the slop, rolling around, and poop, and just being a pig. And you can't take that propensity out of them. It will always be there as a pig. Now, it's interesting to me that Peter compares Christians to sheep. And he does that in several places, one of which is First Peter 2.25. He says, "...for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." So Christians are not dogs and pigs. Those are the false Christians. Christians are like sheep. Also interesting to note that sheep were considered clean animals in the Levitical law. Dogs and pigs were unclean. It was that propensity that pulled those unclean animals back to a life of filth. You never have to worry about a sheep eating its own vomit. Never have to worry about it rolling around in, the, in feces and puddles it's a sheep. It eats grass and it poops. That's basically all it does. So in comparing the Christians to sheep, Peter is separating out the true Christians from the false Christians. But it, hap- but it has happened to them according to the true proverb. And here he actually quotes from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 11. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, the dog or the pig would actually have to become a new creation to stop wanting to eat their own vomit and wallow in their mire. A new creation. That exact language is used in the scripture to describe what happens to a Christian. When you're reborn, you are a new creation in Christ. And that is when we lose that old nature, the propensity to go back to the things in the world. We lose that nature and we are replaced with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And that is then what indwells us. And then we can escape that propensity to run back into the world and we can live as Christ lived. Now, Um, chapter 3, we're going to dive into chapter 3, and Peter is going to address the readers as beloved. He's going to do it four times in this chapter. We won't get to all of them this morning, but we are the beloved. He's writing to Christians, and of which we are some. So the first time he uses beloved, he says, Beloved, be mindful. So be mindful of this specific thing that he's going to say, be mindful of. The second time he says, beloved, don't forget. So stay in remembrance of. The third time, beloved, be diligent. The fourth time, beloved, beware. Now that gives us an interesting flow to this chapter. And we'll move through the first part of it this morning and get to the next part next week. Verse one. Now, remember where we just were. Remember where we're coming from. This is continuation of the thought. He says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now, this is evidence that Peter also wrote Second Peter. Um, it's, it's very evident that he wrote both of them. Some books we're not as sure about. This one we're, we're quite sure Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now he uses this term stir up, and that is the same phrase that he used in 2 Peter 1.13 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Uh, he wants his reminders to cause these believers to bring back into focus the things that they already know. He's reminding them to stir them up, jostle them, wake them back up to the truth. And it's not that they don't know the truth already. They've already been delivered the truth. He's just reminding them, bringing it back into focus. Remember we talked about dozing off in the car? Your head starts bobbing and you're like, Ugh, what am I doing? <laughs> you're drifting off a little bit. He wants to bring you back into focus. That's the same same little phrase he uses here, which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. And you do have a pure mind. Now, that mind is the mind of Christ. It's your other mind that gives you issues. So as long as you you keep with that pure mind, the mind of Christ, no issues. Um, By way of reminder, again, he's presenting things to them that they already know. Uh, It is safe to remind them of the truth. Verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, verse 2 gives us his reasoning for reminding these Christians about these things. Okay, So he says, I want to remind you and stir you up uh, by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. He wants to bring those things that the prophets have already delivered them back into their minds. And also one more thing, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So the things that the apostles had already written to the church, he wants to bring back into reminder. Now, remember that the apostles didn't make these things up. The apostles experienced Jesus in the flesh. They experienced Jesus's early ministry, and they delivered to the churches. Uh, orally, and by their written word, the things which the church should carry out directly from the mouth of Jesus. So, Peter is now striking up their remembrance of, one, what the holy prophet said, and two, what the apostles of the Lord and Savior have said. So, the commandments of the apostles. Verse three, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now it says that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. So they don't have biblical or scientific proof of the position that they take. And they they really take a naturalistic position. And we'll talk about uniformitarianism in just a second. But the natural position says that all things continued as they were from the beginning. Everything on earth can be explained through natural causes that have been operating throughout history. That is a naturalistic worldview. The thing that drives their staunch position is not biblical proof. It's not scientific proof, but it says here in the word of God, it's their own lusts. Their own desire to be their God is what drives their position in this. They wish to live how they see fit. And in being their own God, they can choose what is right and what is wrong. They wish to live how they see fit, with no accountability from any external creator. So they try to explain away this appearance of design in nature. They try to explain it away through natural causes and to escape their own accountability. That's really what's happening here. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Stephen Meyer. He is an advocate for intelligent design uh, he's written several books and papers and everything. He is a holder of a, a earned PhD, and he has been criticized by the Smithsonian Institute because one of the papers that he submitted insinuated a designer. Duh. Intelligent design insinuates a designer by necessity. Now, even a child can look at something, a drawing, and realize that that did not happen by chance or by some natural laws. But someone had to come along, put a pen to the paper, and draw what they're seeing. And it's the same way for us. We see the intricacies in cells, which we now have the ability to actually look at and study. We see the intricate code in DNA and there's no way that it could have been um, accumulated, uh, put together by chance. There, it's literally a mathematical impossibility. And it's been worked out by some of these intelligent design scientists. Um, but it's just its an impossibility. And you have to be willfully ignorant to think that these things happen by chance. You see, all this design... All these things work together perfectly. The universe is literally fine-tuned to allow for life itself. That would not be possible by chance. It simply isn't. And adding more time to the equation like they like to do, you know, just a few years ago, the earth was only a few billion years old. Now it's up to, I think, 7 billion in just a few years. It's amazing how that works. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Later on in this passage, it will say that um, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. It must be like that to the evolutionists too. I don't know. That's a joke, by the way. (laughs) Um, But what I was getting to, Stephen Meyer was criticized for submitting this paper that uh, was very much supporting intelligent design. And what's funnier, not funny, but I don't know, you'll see, the Smithsonian Institute, one of their directors, or one of their high- ups, had three earned PhDs. He loved Stephen Myers's paper, and he published it through the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian fired that guy that was high up in their organization for letting such a piece pass through. There's been other instances of, you know, intellectuals, uh, those involved in academia, being fired suppressed by these colleges, and even as recently as 2006, Baylor fired one of their professors for uh, being a proponent of intelligent design. Now, this is a a supposedly Baptist organization firing someone for believing in the Word of God. It doesn't, I mean, I was going to say it doesn't make sense, but it does. Uh, There will be scoffers in the last days walking according to their own lusts, And saying, where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Translated for you, they say, Jesus still hasn't come back for you. What makes you think he'll be back anytime soon? You know what you can say to them? You make me think that Jesus is coming back soon. Because the Bible tells me that you're coming. (laughs) They'll love that. The scoffers are an indication that Jesus is coming back soon. In the last days, these scoffers will arise. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, this thought is termed uniformitarianism. And this is a definition I found from National Geographic. It's the idea that earth has always changed in uniform ways and that the present is the key to the past. It's exactly what we're reading here in, in scripture. Okay, And this is a very popular position among evolutionists. This is how modern scientists try to understand the world and the world's history by looking at present processes and trying to um, expand those back in time, to account for everything that has happened since then, since creation, which of course they don't believe. But there's a problem with this theory of uniformitarianism, and the problem lies in its assumptions, in this huge, glaring assumption that everything continues as it has always been. And we know, and by the way, a lot of cultures around the world know, that there was a big flood, That happened. And I believe that that changed much of how the world operates, much of the physical structure of the world that we know today. Now, again, we'll we'll touch on that here in just one moment. Verse 5 says, for this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now, Peter very overtly brings in the flood of Noah. Uh, and he did so before in talking about baptism. He really loves the flood. You know, he was a fisherman. So he's been around water his whole life. So the flood, I think, kind of struck a chord with him. So he uses the flood to explain a lot of things. And here he's he's saying that, For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. By the word of God, God literally spoke the earth, the water, stars, light, everything into existence. Bara, the Hebrew for create, but this word specifically means created from nothing. God created from nothing everything that we experience around us. And so Um, the flood, he he continues in verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished, talking about the flood being flooded with water. The flood changed things on earth. The antediluvian world, the world before the flood, was a very different place. And there are a lot of scientists, Christian scientists, who try to understand it. And there is a time and place for that. And I think it's interesting, personally, to see all their findings. But the most sure way that we can learn about the pre-flood world is through the Word of God. It is the inerrant source on pre-flood world. But the things that the flood probably changed include, but are not limited to, the atmospheric pressure. The concentration of the different elements within the atmosphere, including oxygen, um, allowing things to grow bigger and live longer. The oceans, okay, all that tectonic activity, the lava coming up from the deep, floodwaters, it's changing the structure of the oceans, changes the weather. Um, We have good reason to think that it didn't rain before the flood, but there is a mist that came up during the night and covered the ground. So it changed the weather, Um, even seasons. It says that when Noah stepped off the ark, the seasons began. So before the flood, it was largely a tropical climate around the whole world. And so we see these things in scripture that tell us changed from before the flood to after the flood. The longevity of life forms we see recorded in scripture and in completely secular historical sources that lifespans before the flood were much longer. After the flood, you'll see in the genealogies provided in Scripture that the lifespans drop off quite drastically right after the flood. It's no coincidence. The flood changed that. The types of life forms, you know, we don't see everything on the earth that is recorded being here before the flood. Uh, Just here in the Paluxy River, there was found a dinosaur track with a man's footprint on top of it. Um, I'm sorry, it was the other way around. The man put his foot down and the dinosaur put his foot on top of the man's. Interesting. That means the man had to step there before the dinosaur. I think that dinosaurs were on the earth before the flood and they lived in unison, not in harmony, but at the same time as humans. Um, And in the flood, I think they, they largely died off And the changing atmospheric pressure, atmospheric conditions, concentration of oxygen um, probably did not allow them after the flood to grow as big as they are. But we do know that reptiles continue to grow their whole lives. If they lived longer, they would have grown bigger. Interesting. So now preserved by the same word. Uh, Verse 7, he says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, he's talking about creation. God spoke things into existence. And it's by that same word of God that things are held together. They're sustained and, he says, preserved. Now, Colossians 1.17 tells us, referring to Christ, and he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. The word consist means to cohere. In him, all things cohere, are held together. And this is a mystery in the secular scientific community. Do you know that they didn't know everything? They don't. Far from it. How is an atom held together? If you have the positive charges of the protons in a cluster in the nucleus, along with neutrons, how are they cohering? Why are they not repelling those like charges? If you have electrons orbiting around this nucleus of positive charges, how are the negative charges not immediately drawn to the positive charges? How are they suspended out in that orbit? How is it done? They don't know. It's a mystery. But I see here in Second Peter and in Colossians, in him, all things consist. He holds together everything. Have you seen an atomic bomb go off? Hopefully not in person, maybe on a screen. It's, an, it's a massive explosion. It releases a lot of energy and creates a lot of force. But it takes more force to hold that together than the force that is released. Just like a spring, if you hold the spring together, it takes more force to hold it together than the spring actually produces by springing. (laughs) He's a mighty, mighty God, and he holds every atom that he created together, and he continues to do so. Are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The first judgment which Peter refers to was with water. It was the flood of Noah. The generations of Noah were evil. That is when the first judgment came by water. Now there's another judgment coming that is by fire. When God flooded the earth and dried it up, he set a rainbow in the sky. And he said I will never again judge the whole earth with water. And so, the next judgment, and we see this here, will be with fire. By which the world that then existed perished, that's the flood, being flooded with water. Seven, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the same word of God that's holding everything together, are reserved. So, this present earth is reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8 But beloved, do not forget this one thing. So here he's saying, beloved, don't forget, keep this in remembrance. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's encouraging. We'll talk about why. He says, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter wants us to remember that God is not bound by time like we are. He operates outside of the confines of time. And with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. He suffers long for his children. And a thousand years as one day. And he can accomplish in one day what we think should take a thousand years. He does, he is not bound by time. He operates outside of it. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Now, thinking within the boundaries of time, we may see this judgment that's being spoken of as taking a long time to come to fruition. Right? And I I don't blame you for thinking that way. That's how we operate. We operate in time. To us, it's taking forever to get this judgment underway. But... God is right on time and he's in complete control and he actually uses time to serve grace. Further, it seems that God measures time morally, not with a clock, not with a calendar. Let's turn to Matthew 24 real quick. Matthew 24 verse 28 says "Forever." For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, this is Jesus speaking of the timing of his coming. Now, it does say eagles. We can understand that as being vultures, since eagles, as we understand them, don't congregate around dead things. Okay, so for wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will be gathered together. The time when Jesus comes is going to be so morally depraved. And that is how God is measuring time. In Matthew 24 as well, Jesus says, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we know that Noah's generation was extremely, exceedingly evil. Scripture says in Genesis 6-5 that every intent of the thoughts of their heart Was only evil continually. That is very evil. Every thought was only evil continually. There was not a good thought being thought. And so also, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So God is counting down the time morally, He is long suffering willing that not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is literally using the time that he created to dish out his grace to anyone that will accept it. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Jesus didn't come the year before I was saved. I'm glad that he's long-suffering towards me. I'm glad that he waited until I was in the sheepfold to come back. And I think we get selfish sometimes. We think, I just wish he would come back now. Jesus, come back now. Get me out of here. I'm saved, so I'm good. Just let's wrap this up. And it's on our timing. And I'm guilty of that. I've thought that before. I've prayed that before. I've been so ready to get out of here. I know what's coming next. I'd rather be there than here. But he is not willing that any should perish. But he is continuing to be long-suffering to gather up all of his children. And of course, we know that not everyone in the earth will accept the free gift that's placed before them. We know that that is not going to be the case. But I do believe that God knows everyone who will accept that free gift, and he is long-suffering to them and waiting to gather all of them up before he pronounces judgment. In the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleads with God to not destroy the city if there are ten righteous found in it. God says, no, there's not ten. There's one. What does God do? He saves the one from the city before he brings destruction on it. He rescues Lot out of the city. Don't be discouraged. God has not made a promise that he plans on not keeping. In fact, Peter specifically mentions earlier in this chapter that the judgment of the false teachers does not slumber. And that means, literally, it is already in motion. This judgment is already in motion. And we've seen things that indicate that that is true. Let's wrap this study up this morning with a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.